All right. Welcome, everybody, back to uh, Thin Line Believers podcast. Uh, Adam and Steve here with you today. And we are uh, honored and um, just gracious with, with our guest today that took the time to, to spend some time talking with us about, uh, about his career, about his walk, about some of the, the things that he's gone through um, in his career and after his career even. Um, he is Jay Dobbins. Uh, he is a retired special agent and veteran undercover operative with the United States Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And he also is a New York Times bestselling author uh, and a public speaker. Um, if you haven't read his book, uh, No Angel, uh, he's got a couple of them, but uh, specifically No Angel, uh, it's, it's quite the read and quite amazing, uh, his story and what he's been through from beginning to end in his career. So, uh, Jay, welcome, and uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me, and uh, hello to your audience. So um, I thought we'd start from the beginning. Uh, I know in the beginning you you were uh, a prospect basically for football, right? I mean that was kind of your your beginning of of maybe where you thought you were going to go, but then things kind of changed there. You mind starting kind of with that and just tell us uh, where the beginning happened? Yeah, that was you know actually very young. I started playing football. Uh, I wasn't very good. Uh, I got knocked around a lot. And uh, my father, who was my hero and my idol and um, actually used football to teach me one of my first lessons, which was you have to get up. There's always someone out there that's going to knock you down. If you're going to play this game, you got to get back up. You know, and as a as a kid, that didn't it made sense, but I didn't really understand the big picture uh, message that a father was giving to his son that he was actually talking about life. Um, yeah. And so, you know, as I grew and as my skills developed, I became uh, I became a pretty good uh, football player. Um, I ultimately uh, landed at the University of Arizona. I was an all Pac-10 wide receiver. And like for me, my personality, I'm very, uh, man, I've got all kinds of personality flaws and quirks and character uh, miscues, right? And like I'm super OCD. I am uh, one of these people who uh, gets their mindset on something and focuses on it. And I never had a plan B. I was going to play professional football and I never thought anything else about that. I, n I never like even imagined doing anything else. So I went to the 1984 NFL combine and I went there to show off. I went there like full of swagger and full of self-confidence with this attitude that I was going to show these scouts and coaches and general managers how valuable I was and how important I could be to their organization. And I got paired up with a couple guys for the workout who I'd never heard of before. You know, like I had some notoriety going into this thing. I'd never heard of these guys before. Uh, one guy was from a little school in Mississippi. The other guy went to Cutstown State, which I'd never even heard. I'd never even heard of his school, let alone the player, right? Yeah, where is it? <laughs> um, so we shake hands and he says, yeah, you know, my school's in Pennsylvania. And, I, and my internal dialogue is like, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to bury you guys today. I'm going to show you guys how we do it in the most dynamic offensive conference in the country. And with no plan B, 10 minutes into the workouts, 
my plan A was destroyed. I knew that I wasn't going to be a pro football player. I could not do what these guys I'd never heard of could do. Uh, I, I wasn't as fast as they were. I couldn't jump as high. I wasn't as athletic. Um, my world crashed literally in 10 minutes as a, as a, you know, a 22 year old young man. Now I knew I had to find something else to do in hindsight. These two guys that I'd never heard of the one from Cutstown state was Andre Reed, who played 15 years in the NFL for the Buffalo bills and played in four super bowls is in the hall of fame. And the guy that was from the little school in Mississippi went to Mississippi Valley State. It was Jerry Rice. It was arguably the best football player to ever wear a helmet and shoulder pads. So I wasn't judging myself against the most fair competition. But nonetheless, um, one of the lessons I learned there, and I think it applies to all of us, is that our goals change. They evolve, sometimes by circumstance, sometimes by choice. But uh, like what we intend to do today might not be where we end up tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's all in God's plan, really, when you look back at everything. You know, he, he didn't obviously have a plan for you to play alongside Andre Reid and, and Jerry Rice. <laughs> so um, getting into uh, how, how did you get going into the, the ATF? How, how was that plan um, you know, developed with you and, and how did that become an option for you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting at this stage of my life and I'm trying to figure out what's next. And at the time, this was, uh, the, the mid eighties, right? So at the time, the television show, Miami vice was very popular, not the movie, not Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx that the millennials are familiar with the old school television show. <laughs> and, you know, I'm watching, Miami Vice, and and I see Sonny Crockett like wearing a Hugo Boss suit and driving a Lamborghini around South Beach, and he's meeting with uh, these glamorous kingpins, and they're negotiating for a ton of cocaine that's on some barge out in the harbor, and he's like smoking and joking at mansions, and there's like beautiful like uh, supermodels hanging around and bringing them martinis and the whole thing, and I was like, man. You know, like I'm not, I'm not good enough to play football. I'm not good enough to play football professionally, but I can do that. man. I can go out and, and run my game and, and show off a little bit. And I knew in this evolution, I knew that I wanted to at least try to work undercover. I didn't know if I'd be good at it. Um, I didn't know really much about it, but it was very intriguing to me. So to answer your question, I landed at ATF because uh, we had and and still have the most dynamic undercover law enforcement program in in federal law enforcement. And so like I like I wanted to go to the big leagues, man. I, I, I wanted to play shortstop for the Yankees. You know, I wanted to go to the top and see if I could succeed and thrive and achieve at the top of that food chain. So that's how I landed at ATF. Gotcha. Okay. And at, at, at this point in your life and in your career, did you have any kind of um, any kind of faith, any kind of religion, any kind of you know relationship with Christ at that point? I did. You know, I was uh, raised Catholic, <laughs> um, 
And, you know, like, and, and I think we'll get to this later in the story, but <laughs> my faith, especially at that time of my life, and actually through a large chunk of my adult life, um, was very selfish. It was like, mm-hmm. I uh, went to God and, and spoke to God when I needed uh, a favor, when I needed something, when I wanted to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Like that's when, that's when I spoke to God and, you know, and we'll get to this later in the story, but through the events of my life and through some things that happened, I realized, I realized the hard way that if the only time you're talking to God is when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. sure. So you uh, you start your career uh, with a bang, uh, for lack of better words, right? I mean, you're you're newly on the ATF and you've gone through your training and all that, and then you have an incident that that kicks off. That's not the normal first incident for you guys, right? Well, your leader into that question is is partially right. Um, I yeah. hadn't received any training. <laughs> I got hired on a Monday. Oh, wow. I got hired on a Monday. And on a Thursday, four days later, I was taken hostage and shot. Uh, I was shot point blank in the back. The bullet went in my back. It went through my lung. It narrowly missed my uh, heart on the left side. Uh, it exited my chest, you know, and, and four days on the job with, with really no uh, background in law enforcement, I was laying in the garbage of a trailer park bleeding to death with blood coming out of my chest. Like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. So, um, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty dynamic entrance into the profession, into the business. And, um, like, and at this point in time, uh, zero regrets for that. Actually, um, like short of, uh, like meeting my wife and the and having my kids born uh, probably was one of the greatest events and most beneficial events of my life to have having gone through that. Wow. Yeah, I don't think many people would say that about an event like that. So that says something about you for sure. You know what? It it it. it it taught me so many things about life, about what we do for a living, um, uh, about survival and resiliency and overcoming obstacles. And, you know, at the time when you're, you know, you're, you're laying in the dirt dying, you don't think those things, but you know, and, and, and then those things like, you know, I talked about as a kid, those lessons, my dad was trying to teach me as a kid. They, uh, they came into play. Like I, I was literally, like I said, dying, bleeding to death in this trailer park. And what's in my head is get up, fight back. No mm-hmm. one is coming to rescue you. You have to learn to help yourself. And, you know, now, of course, I did not survive that on my own. I had some amazing partners. And um, like in that event, through, you know, all of my life, I've had God's hand on my shoulder. And so uh, all of us together, uh, you know, I got through it. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. It seems like in a lot of those situations that we hear about it, it what it comes down to is a decision. Uh, you know, like in your case, it was a decision that, okay, this isn't the end. I'm not going to die from this. I'm not going to let some freaking punk take my life here. I'm not in it. Yeah. I, but I, and I, and I think that was an event in my life. And I think that all of us in like in all walks of life, in all professions or, or, or in anything we do, we're confronted with those types of situations. Um, uh, they, they may not be life and death situations, but they're life altering situations. They're, they're catastrophic problems that we encounter. And do you, or do you not let that beat you? Do you, or do you not let that overcome you and, and destroy you or, or put your life on a path that's, uh, unrecoverable or does it defeat your attitude or your outlook on life and your goals and your objectives? Um, we all encounter them, um, in, in all in our different ways, individual ways. So you move on from that point, right? And, uh, you end up doing a lot of UC work and, and my extent of, of UC is Serato's training of uh, UC school. So, I mean, you know, I don't have any firsthand knowledge in this. Uh, what does it, what does it take? What do you go through to, to get to that point? And then uh, clearly it, it must be learned by burn at that point once you're in there and uh, actually doing it. Right. Yeah. I, I think that we can all, uh, we can all train for whatever our area of expertise is and, and, and use the lessons learned from those that came before us and and study and and do all those things. But in undercover work, you just have to get out there and start getting your feet wet. Um, you just have to do it and you have to see um, like, like what it's life in real what it's like in real life. We can set up practical exercises and we can rehearse. But bottom line is, is that the, the, and I found there's two critical elements uh, to, to all of us that, that have been successful in undercover work and it's comfort and confidence. I've never been able to figure out which one comes first or second personally, but we're either confident, self-confident, confident in our role, which then allows us to project a comfortable persona, or we're just comfortable in the environment that we're in and then we project confidence. But those are two key elements that you have to have and you have to develop to be successful, at least long-term in the undercover game. You have to be comfortable and you have to be confident. Um, like I said, which one comes first or how they tie together or if it's an even race between the two, I'm not really sure. But you have to have both. So it's a, so you end up after you uh, kind of get some experience under your belt with with undercover first uh, with this idea to get into the Hell's Angels by creating a uh, sort of a, a, a sister group or a, a support um, OMG right and uh, called the the Solo Angelus correct. Well, you know when when the when the Hell's Angels uh, case when that opportunity arrived. I'd already had at that point a good 15 years of undercover work under my belt. So mm -hmm. I had, you know, I had done everything from buying street corner dope to cartel dope. I had bought uh, Saturday night special 
pea shooters, you know, to uh, shoulder-launched missiles. I'd bought uh, homemade PVC pipe bombs that some meth head was making in the garage at his mom's house up to servo-activated remote-controlled C4 devices. Um, I had done home invasion cases and murder for hires and gang infiltrations. So when the opportunity came to make a run at the Hells Angels, man, like I was on my game now. I, I didn't stumble into that, and it wasn't something that I um, accepted uh, blindly, not knowing what it was going to take. So, but yes, the opportunity came up. And uh, one of our plays for credibility to establish street cred into the Hells Angels is that we basically extorted our way into another gang. There was actually two infiltrations within one. We leveraged and muscled and extorted our way into a gang uh, called the Solo Angels, which were based in Tijuana, Mexico. And we did not get into them for the purpose of investigating their crimes, which they were involved in violent crime and drug trafficking and all kinds of things as well. We used our, our, our membership and association with the solo angels to gain credibility in the biker world, in the eyes of the hell's angels. Well, it seems like it worked. I mean, you know, I finished your book actually last night, which is convenient for today, but, uh, it, it certainly worked, and uh, I mean, the world that you ended up being immersed in—I mean, violent—and I mean, I mean, it's just there, there's a evil there that they seem to be really proud of. Well, not only are they proud of it, they flaunt it and they use it. They use, uh, and, and I won't. When I say they, I'm not saying across the board. Every patch-wearing member of the Hell's Angels holds this. Uh, mindset or mantra, but they do use uh, like that, like satanic, evil, hell-based, devil-based vibe about them. Uh, some of them are true believers in that, and some of them just use it to intimidate and 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 make people uncomfortable and use it for the shock effect of it. Um, and but whatever their motivation is, like when you're aligning yourself with the devil, man, that's not good, man. That's like <laughs> you you ain't gonna win that game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and what I appreciated when I was reading this is that you know you had a lot of transparency in what you were going through, and it seemed like there was a real internal struggle with who you actually were uh, when you went undercover. You almost you you turned into this uh, bird, your alter ego. Well, you know, there's there's some splinter stories off that, but you're you're spot on. And, and when I wrote my book, um, my goal was to be transparent in in the telling of my story. So, you know, when you finish No Angel, um, whether you look at me as someone uh, that that you that you look upon with admiration, or whether you look upon me as a villain. Um, those are personal choices to make, but I wanted to be honest in how I told the story and let people come to their own conclusion. Um, in the telling of that story, um, and in hindsight and in reflection, uh, that experience, that Hell's Angels infiltration, which was, uh, you know, plus or minus a two-year undercover, like, 
day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year infiltration, it really highlighted uh, the flaws and failures in me and in my character and in how I was living my life. Um, you know, uh, when we talk like to, to lead or, or, or to follow up in your question, you know, I became so saturated in that lifestyle because I had to. People that dabble in undercover work or that treat it as a hobby end up dead or their partners end up dead. You have to be all in, you know, and, and one of the which I, I didn't see at the time, one of the aspects uh, that is now very clear. You know, I came home one day, uh, you know, I'd been in and out of the house, but uh, on these long term, long stints away from home. And my wife told me. You cannot walk in the door after being gone for months at a time and treat me and the kids like we're your street suspects. And in my defense, in, in, in my, uh, my insecurity, I, I, I tried to uh, justify it. I said, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this character on and off. I have to be on all the time to survive. And then her response was, that might be the case, but when you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch on that light switch, and you better turn that attitude and that vibe down. And if you can't, then don't <laughs> come home until you can. And that was like my very first indication, although I didn't process it at the time, as to what my lifestyle and my drive and this case and this and my career was doing to my family. Yeah, I think a lot of us experienced something similar, but not to quite the degree that you did. I mean, not probably not even close to the degree that you did. Um, you know, I mean, we we take on special assignments, and it's pretty clear that a department's going to let you take on as much as you want, and. <laughs> Regardless of what it does to your home life, it's you know it's those around you that might really in a little bit, and you seem to have a good uh, core group of guys that kind of helped bring you back from that. Uh, I guess the the bird the bird persona edge, I I would call it. Well, yes, I I was uh, surrounded uh, by an amazing group of men and women on our task force who who did incredible work. Um. And even more so is that like I, I and, and I didn't appreciate them at the time the way I should have. Um, I was surrounded uh, and a part of an amazing family. Um, and as I was chasing this, what I believe to be a legacy, I believe that I was standing up against evil and violence on behalf of America. I was handling America's violent crime business the best I could. I did it as hard as I could every day, day in, out. It, it, it dominated who I wanted to be. And in the end, I realized that the people that cared about me the most were the ones that I treated the worst. And that is, uh, that's, that's shameful to say. It's regretful to say. Um, especially when I'm talking to an anonymous audience that I don't know, they don't know me. People like form opinions, uh, you know, of others based on what they see and hear. And what I'm telling you is humiliating and it's going to cause people to have 
uh, a negative uh, view of me. But if I don't tell you the truth, if I don't speak the truth about myself, then why am I here? What am I doing? Why, like all of us could go and tell glory stories and war stories and hero stories, um, it, like I could as well as you could. But if I don't tell you the backstory, if I'm not open and honest and transparent about the backstory, I have no credibility. So if you listen to my story and you decide that you don't like me, I get that. But at least you're hearing the truth. Yeah, and speaking of which, I think I'm kind of operating under the assumption that people people know more about you than than I'm assuming here. And you know, having just read the book, I, I think I'm making some unfair assumptions. So, can you go into just a little bit of detail about what you actually did as one of the solo angels, and and how you made worked your way up that chain, and uh, what that took, um, kind of your your day to day work undercover. Well. It was a two-year assignment, and uh, every aspect of crime, of violent crime, that you can imagine or dream of, uh, we were exposed to or a part of or next to, from murder to rape to uh, assaults, uh, extortions, uh, firearms trafficking, narcotics trafficking, drug use, prostitution. Uh, money laundering, um, you name it. If there was uh, a money or a violence aspect tied to that element of crime, over those two years, you know, we got next to it and and became a part of it. Um, ultimately, uh, we 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 gained our our membership into the gang by leading. Uh, the Hells Angels to believe that we had committed a violent murder on their behalf. We actually fabricated a murder, um, mocked up a murder, and then took the evidence of our fabricated murder to the Hells Angels to push our credibility over the top and um, convince them that we had murdered a, a, a rival on the gang's behalf. And that is ultimately what put us up over the top and, and ultimately uh, we were awarded, you know, our membership into the gang because of that event, but also because of the two years we had spent with them prior to that, gaining their loyalty, uh, gaining their trust, in some cases gaining their love. You know, I, I, I had made friends within the gang, within this gang community that um, there's no doubt in my mind would have stepped in front of a bullet for me. It went beyond trust and, and loyalty. It became love. Um, and you know, that's, that, that's, that's got its own set of mental, emotional, psychology, psychological issues that are created behind, uh, lying to someone for so long and so extensively that you build love in them only to betray it. Um, that, 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 that holds its own set of uh, issues that are created that like some psychologist or psychiatrist needs to sort through. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so ultimately when the 
case came to fruition, you had you had purchased multiple firearms of all different types from these folks, uh, drugs, all these different case, you know, uh, separate cases within this case. And then how did how did you put all that together when it came time for uh, you know grand jury prosecutions, all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, I had an amazing uh, case agent, a guy named Joe Slatella, who was uh, just an incredible mind, an incredible organizer. Um, he had this, he, he, I mean, he had this perfect storm of, uh, a brilliant mind and investigators, uh, intelligence. And, and he was actually the one that was responsible for assembling all the, this case and all these moving parts and, and pulling it together and putting a bow on it and then taking it to the, uh, U S attorney's office for indictments and, and, uh, the prosecution, which, you know, was based on arrest warrants and search warrants and seizures and evidence acquisitions and uh, audio recordings and reports. And it was massive. It was uh, it, it was a task that very few investigators uh, could pull off uh, uh, or at least pull off to the level that Joe Slatella did. Nice. And then so in the aftermath, you know, a lot of the stress that we deal with, I think, is, is uh, you know, comes from our department. Now, whether that's, you know, perceived or whether it's actual struggles with the departments that we work for, uh, it, it's a realistic stress. And, you know, to quote just a little section from your book here, it says, uh, I'd expected to be betrayed by the Hells Angels, but not by the people I'd worked so incredibly hard for referring to the ATF and and so how did you actually work through the struggles with your department? Um, I don't know that I worked through them very well. Um, I fought them. I challenged them. Um, and um, I, uh, I, I I took them to task on not only how, how I was treated but how historically undercover operators had been treated um, I wouldn't say universally by the agency, but not, uh, not uncommonly. Um, you know, like I was not the first ATF undercover agent to put every single thing on the line for the agency and for the agency's mission to be shut out and, and shunned and, and rejected once the case was done. Um, I was just the first one to step up to to that and and to challenge them on it um and man as you guys know um either personally or historically um agencies bureaucracies do not take kindly to a lowly low level bottom of the totem pole agent telling them what they do wrong that does not go over well and they fought back against me you know, as hard as they could, they used all the resources of ATF and the Department of Justice to, to crush me, to crush my spirit, to crush me financially, to crush me legally. They did everything they could to destroy my reputation. Um, uh, the, it, the, 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 the links they went to to bury me uh, were unprecedented. Um, and it comes back again, like to the, like the story that we told earlier, you got to fight back. You got to like, you got to be willing to get up. You got to stay in the fight, trust God. 
Um, uh, bottom line is for all of us, and, and especially in God's eyes, the truth never changes. The truth is the truth, and the truth today is going to be a tr the truth a million years from now. It's not going to change, regardless of who tries to spin it or morph it or turn it into something other than what it is for their own benefit. <laughs> I'm glad to, I'm glad you're so open about that because uh, in our experience, and I think it's just like you say, it's truth that God's going to be the one that's there always and forever, and we deal with humans. Departments are full of humans. Yeah. Uh, families are full of humans. Friends are humans. And so realistically, the only one that we can ultimately depend on always and forever is, is God. And uh, I'd like to quote just a little bit more out of your book here, Jake, because um, th this just kind of stuck in my brain last night. And it says, as I said, dark days, I turned to be the only things I had left, God, friends, and family. I didn't deserve their allegiance, and why they hadn't abandoned me, I'll never know. But there they were. I turned to them and saw with new eyes what was good in my life. I realized that the only that only by the grace of God did I have these good things. I came to accept whatever had been bad in my life was done by my own hand. It wasn't my job, it wasn't ATF, and it wasn't the Hells Angels that had transformed me into the worst person myself. It was I alone who had done that. And so that that paragraph there just stuck out in my mind that uh, you realize that there was a, a bigger group that got you through this, and that's pretty amazing in my eyes. Well, you know, my mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual recovery from the depths of who I'd become uh, – were uh, like based in um, they were based in self-assessment and, and honesty um, I wanted someone to blame for who I had become I wanted an excuse for who I had become I wanted someone that I could point the finger at and say who I am and what has happened to me is your fault and only through some honest self-assessment did I realize, man, it's, it's my fault. Don't blame like, and I think we, I, th I, I think we do that as human beings because it makes us feel better. We don't want to feel like we failed. We don't want to feel like we made mistakes. We want to feel like we did the right thing. Um, and I tried to do that. Um, there's days when I did, but there's days when I failed too. And I learned, uh, I feel much better about myself just being honest with myself and and the one person i realized um, i could hide from everybody i could lie to everybody i could make anyone believe my story because i was that good at it the one person that i was never going to fool was god yeah that, that's I mean, that's saying something right there, just that he's always watching, he always knows, he knows his plan, he has a plan from day one for us, and, you know, we can we can try and run and hide, and but, uh, you know, that always leads to, to the enemy, and, and the enemy entangles us and looks for those ways to grab hold of us, and, you know, if we don't uh, realize that and see that in our lives, uh, you know, especially in the, the line of work that we're all in, uh, that can happen pretty quickly. You know, the things that happened to me, 
some of the unfortunate things that happened to me, some of the things at the time that I did not understand and that I felt were so unfair. Um, in hindsight, they were all part of God's plan. Um, I didn't understand them and they didn't make sense. And, and I, and I was resistant to them. And now like where I'm at in my life now, they all make sense. They were, you know, he was, he gave me free will and he, and he put me on a path and he allowed me to make my own choices. And I made those choices and often I made the wrong choices and I made wrong decisions based on my free will. But he kept pulling me back to center, pulling me back to center, um, keeping me uh, like at least, w you know, w within the hash marks of, of right and wrong. And ultimately, all these things that like I felt were catastrophic in my life, they were all uh, part of God's plan to ultimately build me into, you know, hopefully who I am today, which is someone uh, that that's that that's much better, uh, just a better person than I was mm -hmm. at this time in my life that we're discussing. Yeah, for sure. So I've actually got a couple questions, and I'm going to start working these into more of my interviews. Um, I I'd like to know specifically uh, talking about this Hell's Angels case. How is your relationship with God? changed from the time that you were doing this case and working undercover uh, to now? How is your relationship different? Well, I think, you know, these, these circumstances, that, that experience, um, I was um, earlier in my life, for a large portion of my life, for the bulk of my life, I was a very selfish person. I made decisions uh, selfishly. I made decisions that impacted me. I did what I wanted. Uh, for my own benefit, chasing, you know, I said, like I said, this false legacy. And I realized what, uh, what a failure I was and what a failure, like I was spiritually and personally. People looked at me from the outside and they, and, and they, and they looked at what was accomplished and they were amazed by it and they were impressed by it. And people were calling me a hero and people were saying, man, you did something that people thought was impossible, that that could never be done, that was uh, like incapable in, of the law enforcement world. And I for a long time, I absorbed that and I embraced it because it made me feel good and it fed into that selfishness. And the reality of it is, is that I was a I was a personal failure. I was a spiritual failure. And when I started to realize that and then take some of these bad events and turn them, um, I realized like being selfish is the exact opposite of what God wants us to be. He wants us to help other people. He wants us to impact the lives of other people and inspire them and lead people to him. Um, all I ever cared about was me. All I ever cared about was myself. I wasn't I wasn't concerned with like trying to take my life's events or my story or my testimony and inspire anybody towards God. I was trying to inspire them towards me. And that man, that's a bad path to be on, man. That's a failed path. So now the things I do have a different focus. Um, I, I try to live 
you know, by God's golden rule. I try to treat people good. I try to treat people the way I want to be treated. And when they don't or when they fail me or when they betray me, I forgive them. Um, the people that hurt me, the people that went out of their way to damage me, the people that committed crimes and were corrupt in, in, in how they interacted with me, um, I found a, a huge sense of peace personally by going through God and forgiving those people. People make mistakes. We make mistakes in life. Some of the things that were done to me were mistakes. Whether that person realizes it um, or even cares what they did to me. Like I'm not holding the grudge for them. Um, I've forgiven them. And like when we forgive people, it's the gift we give ourselves. I like that. And then, and then the second question I wanted to ask is, especially from the viewpoint of a, uh, a special agent uh, or what we would say is first responders, um, what does it mean from your viewpoint to be a Christian? Well, I, I think we're, um, we're God's warriors. You know, um, uh, God, God has, you know, his angels that are his warriors and, and he sends them on missions for good. And I believe our first responders are his angels on earth. Um, and, and you guys have heard it many times, uh, the underappreciated who do the unthinkable for the ungrateful, they're underpaid and here is what I love about our profession, and I, and I truly believe that it's God-based, is that every day, police officers, firemen, uh, uh, EMS, emergency room workers, um, uh, I think it applies to teachers as well, um, an alarm clock goes off, and especially in the first responder professions, especially even more so in, in the law enforcement profession. That alarm clock goes off and those people, men and women, they put their feet on the ground and they get up and they have a cup of coffee and eat a bowl of cereal and pat their kids on their head on the head and they kiss their husbands and wives goodbye and they go to work knowing that they are going to be despised and attacked and uh, insulted and assaulted and and murdered and sniped. And they still go and they go out to that job when they kiss their families goodbye, knowing there's no guarantee that they will ever come home that day. And they still go. They still go because it's a greater good. We are serving a greater good. We are, we are truly serving God's purpose on earth, which is to take care of other people. Yeah, I think we need to not lose sight of that because uh, a lot of times we can let let the events cloud our vision. So uh, I, I really appreciate you speaking to that, Jay. Well, you know, for all of us, um, the, the, the job is difficult and, and there's people that choose to hate us simply because of the profession we've chosen, simply because of the uniform you wear. Um, and like, God doesn't want us to be broken by that. He doesn't want us to be discouraged by that. He doesn't want us to be defeated 
by people uh, simply because we're not appreciated or because we're not, you know, like very rarely in this profession does anyone ever say thank you or shake your hand um, or, or show any level of respect or appreciation for what we do. We hear complaints and we solve problems and but somebody has to do it. And I've said this many times, if not us, who is going to do that? Who's going to do that job? Hmm. Is your landscaper going to do it or the guy that fixes your car or um, uh, the, the, the guy that's that's any profession out there? Like who is going to do those things? Who's going to take those risks? Who's going to put their life uh, and their livelihood on the line if we don't? Who's going to stand up to the violence if we don't? And if you want to, raise your hand, man. Come on. I will help you. I will give you every trick of the trade I have. I will do everything I can to help you be great and stay safe and stay healthy and stay alive in the process. But until then, there's those of us that do it in spite of you, not because of you. Yeah. So <clears throat> to follow up kind of in, in what you were just saying, you said, uh, you know, tricks of the trade and, and things that you can help them stay healthy. Um, what have you done with everything that you've been through and with all that you've seen and had to do and all that um, to stay healthy? Both, I mean, physically is one thing, right? But, you know, mentally and spiritually is an, a whole nother beast um, that we, we face in, in our career paths. What have you done to kind of maintain that? Well, you know, a, a couple things. The, the core of it is that I rededicated myself to God. Um, I, I, mm -hmm. I hit the reset button and basically asked for a do-over. And, and to be quite honest, um, that's the beauty of Jesus, man. And, and what Jesus brought to us is that, uh, like speaking for myself, I have made a million mistakes in my life. And I've asked for forgiveness and I've been given a million and one second chances. Um, not a day goes by, even trying to live a better life. Not a single day goes by where I don't put my head on the pillow at night and have regrets over something I said or did or something that I didn't say or do that I should have. And I ask for forgiveness and I ask for, for, for improvement and another chance on those. And I've continually, millions of times over the course of my life, been given second chances to try to do better. Um, but now... What I do, the focus of my life is is very unselfish, which is a big change from, you know, how I lived the bulk of my life and pretty much my entire adult life. Um, I, I speak to law enforcement groups. I do public speaking. Um, I tell this story. I tell it in an open and honest and transparent way. And I and I try to give back that, that really the only way that I can still make a contribution into our business, into our world, is to tell my story and to talk about the mistakes and to try to help people avoid those mistakes. Um, I have my own podcast, uh, which is called Copland, which is designed to inspire other people. It's and they're not my stories. They're stories of my friends and stories of my peers that I help promote um, to, 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 to give hope, you know, to people in our profession through others, through some amazing people and amazing stories. And then when you introduced me, one element of my resume that 
that you didn't mention that like I'm very proud of and it's it really dominates my life today is I'm a high school football coach. Um, I'm, I'm the head football coach. I, well, I was a high school football coach for the last 15 years. Um, but I just recently took a head football coach at, at a, a small program here in Tucson at Tanga Verde high school. And I use like all these life's experiences and my football experience to try to impact the lives of young people, to try to help them stay on their path and show them inspiration and give them inspiration and, and, and guide them like through some of the uh, faults and failures that I made, you know, like for me personally, I was always that guy that wisdom came to me right after I needed it. Right after something bad happened, I got smart about what I should have done. So I'm trying to help these kids um, like, like live good, productive lives and, and teaching some of those lessons through football, but their life's lessons. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we uh, reading your book. Okay, so you, you called yourself selfish and all this stuff, and, and we're oftentimes I think we're our own worst, harshest judges. Mm -hmm. But in reading through your book, what I saw a lot of was a lot of what we feel when we go to go to scenes when we see these these kids, the defenseless, right? And and you talk about the the poor living situations and. And you did everything that you could to to get them out of those living situations eventually when, you know, when the case came to fruition and now you're doing more for kids. And so, you know, we're from the outside in, um, you know, we see that you had a good heart at the time. You've got a good heart now. And we, you know, we thank you for what you did, for what you continue to do, Jay. And, and uh, you know, promoting those of us who are in the law enforcement profession, um, we both listened to your your Copland podcast, and um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's too bad that you can only do so many episodes a year because they're they're pretty addicting, especially when we're you know in a patrol car for a whole shift. So, well, but anyway, you know, thank you for, for what that. You did and what you do. I thank you for saying that because that is exactly what the purpose of it was. When I started Copland, I'd, I've met so many amazing people, and I'm so inspired by their stories and who they are. I wanted some officer who gets in his car, I wanted him to be able to turn on Copland. And by the time he arrived at his station and had to walk inside and buckle his gear on, I wanted him to be, or her, to be inspired by someone else's uh, ability to overcome. And, and, and one of the elements when I started Copland that led me to start it, um, was that I wanted to give every one of those guests an opportunity to speak on God or faith or their spirituality and how it impacted their life. There's not a guest that, that, that has appeared on that show that I've not given them an opportunity to glorify God and credit God in, in the amazing lives they've led and the amazing experiences they've survived. Yeah, it's amazing. <clears throat> so uh, obviously Copland, you've got that going, and we're familiar with that. Um, you know, you've got your couple books that you've written that, that are amazing in and of themselves, um, and your high school teacher. What else do you have going? How can people reach out to you if they'd like to get a hold of you, you know, going forward, whether that be for speaking engagements or just to, you know, 
to speak with you about their stories, if they have something that would maybe fit with uh, Copland, uh, how can they reach you? Yeah, I'm, I make it very easy. Um, uh, I'm on Facebook. I am on uh, Instagram. I have a Twitter account. Uh, I have uh, an open public email address, which is easy to find. It's just j at jdobbins.com, J-A-Y-D-O-B-Y-N-S.com. And so either through email or social media, I'm super easy to contact. And, and, you know, like just to step back a little bit in one of the comments you made leading into this about what we see in our profession, um, the, 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 the rate of suicides in the law enforcement profession, in the first responder community has reached an epidemic. Um, and I think that alone is the inspiration that we need to take care of ourselves. We need to take care of each other. We need to we need to look out for ourselves. Yes, but man, we need to look out for our partners. We need to have difficult conversations with our friends and partners. When we see something wrong, when we see someone going down a bad path, the easy way is to ignore it. The easy way is to bury it or or let it go. The hard thing to do is to confront that person and have a difficult conversation. And we have to do that so that we can overcome these stigmas that are prevalent in our profession of people refusing or failing or being insecure about raising their hand and saying, man, I need help. I need someone to help me. The stigma of that in our profession is huge. And you guys, what you're doing is helping defeat that for people to say, man, it's okay. Based on what you've mm -hmm. seen and what you've heard and the life you've lived, it's okay to ask for help. Man, please do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something we hit on a lot is, uh, you know, asking for that help and reaching out. And, uh, you know, with that, Jay, we appreciate you being on and, and speaking those words into, into our audience and into the people who tune in with us, um, you know, and God bless your work as you go forward and the people you reach. And, you know, hopefully uh, we can hook up again sometime and kind of have a repeat and just kind of refresh at some point. And um, if you guys listen, guys and gals who are listening to us today, um, you know, have any kind of prayer requests or any kind of resources that you need as far as, you know, the stresses or, or those things that you're going through, we have a lot of those in line and, and would be happy to help. So uh, please reach out. And, uh, you know, Jay, we appreciate you, and, and thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, and I'm so flattered to speak to you and to your audience. And all my respect and admiration and love goes out to all of you, man. Be safe. Be amazing. Go change the world. Um, do it, you know, under the umbrella of, of what God put us here to do. And just and and be dynamic about it, and be and be strong, and be confident, and be proud of what we do, because you were put here, and you were put in the place that you're in to change the world, and to impact people's lives, and be amazing, and just and man, go do that, because that in itself is a blessing. Amen to that. I will leave it with that, because that those are great, you know, closing words. So. Uh, we will speak with you guys again next week and uh, hope you have a blessed week and reach out if you if we can help with anything.